Hi and welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Stephen Ridgway and this is uh, Talking VTE uh, number 40 for February 2015, the uh, very first uh, vodcast for the year. Uh, perhaps we'll make a start by just going around the, uh, the room and uh, everyone introducing themselves uh, to my right, of course. Robin Jay. Hi everyone. And uh, the online audience. I'm Michael Coglin in Adelaide. Alison Miller is also in Adelaide, and we're half an hour before you guys, and going to stay that way. <laughs> <laughs> the internet allows us to be half an hour. On this side, Alexander Hayes and Jacinta Gascoigne, FLL 2003. Yeah, long time ago. Mm. With Michael, yeah. I'm That's pleased right. to say. Was with my yes, I was a lucky girl. Mm. Oh, you were all three in the same year. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and Alison. Ah, beautiful. Lance is Vance has just come in, so he might be able to hear us. So yes, I'm in Adelaide with Michael, but I'm in Adelaide that's half an hour behind these guys um, and not half an hour ahead of them, um, and we will remain that way as well. Yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> Hi, and hello. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think. Ah, yes, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> I had to put in my VPN. Yeah. I was I've been having a lot of problems with Hangout lately. Hey Alex, nice to see you. Hey. Great to see you, Vance. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Mm -hmm. Nice to see you. What's the Hangout single? That one. That's what we do in Hawaii. What we used to anyway. That's right. Hanging out. <laughs> but but <laughs> if I, I got a VPN, I could set it for Hawaii and then, you know, you wouldn't know, right? That's it. <laughs> right. So that's, do, you, do you need to do a VPN because of internet restrictions? I don't know. Uh, some, there are internet restrictions in the UAE, so uh, but they, they they're lightening up quite a bit. So normally I don't have to. But um, anyway, so but lately I've been getting a lot of timeouts on Hangouts. So uh, this one has stayed here for almost three minutes now, so that's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we might be offended if you disappear then. Well, yeah. I, the, other, the other day I hosted a Hangout, and uh, it was very strange. Uh, I had two computers because I started, I was dropping out of one, so I started another one, so I had two, two of myself in the Hangout. But um, at one point, the uh, the computer that I was moderating from froze. That is, the browser froze. The Hangout froze. Everything else was working, but uh, I couldn't. And the other computer, it didn't. It did what it just did. It you could see my text, but I, I wasn't connecting. So, in one computer, I couldn't see what was going on. In the other computer, it I could see what the other people were doing, but I couldn't. And I could hear them from that computer, but. Um, Answers Yeah, it it was really odd because uh, I found out that my video was showing, my audio was I was communicating, and I just had to run it, you know, without being able to see anything or without being able to mute, without having any functionality. Uh, but the recording came out fine. I saw it later and it looked looked great, you know, <laughs> apart from me. All right. Well, we anyway. shall uh, get the discussion underway and uh, welcome everyone. Look, we were we had a little chat earlier about uh, what the broad territory of the podcast uh, is going to be, and there is some stuff on the uh, session notes. But broadly speaking, it's about the transformation of the uh, the vet sector in in Australia over the last 10, 20 years, I guess. But particularly about more recent uh, changes that have been quite um, dramatic. So, does I mean, probably some of the older states people, yourself and Michael, might want to kick that off because uh, you've been in the vet sector probably the longest. Um, in reflection, <laughs> thank you, Michael. Thanks. We knew that. Yes. Vet equals. Yeah, but maybe Vance had forgotten. Hmm. Ah, oh, 
And by the way, I've been listening to your podcast for years. Apart from that, I have little to do with the vet sector. But I'm just kind of attuned to where you're coming from. Well, actually, isn't the UAE adopting the Australian vet system? I rather thought that we had a whole lot of people from TAFE go over to the UAE and try to just dump the whole model there. Am I, am I wrong there? Has anyone heard of that? Not in a military college, you don't. Yeah, and maybe it's uh, maybe since I'm in language teaching, um, perhaps. But well, anyway, perhaps it's, it's in a different sector. Uh, I teach it the uh, through the higher colleges, and yeah. um, there just doesn't seem to be uh, none of that information has trickled down to me. Although I've been here for 15 years now. Tape South Australia are currently working in uh, Dubai in a brand new college, and have been asked to kind of. Get this. Lead them into the e-learning world. Woohoo! And there we are. You see. Which yeah. college? I don't know the name of Advance, but there was a big <laughs> tender just before I quit TAFE, mm -hmm. and uh, TAFE SA produced these incredibly beautiful-looking booklets about an inch thick, and I just laughed and thought it's all lies. However, it won the day, and they got the gig. This isn't being recorded, right? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I'm free now. Yeah. yeah. There's no blind leading the blind here. Live and recording. So, yes, there is a, a, probably other Australian tapes too, very active in the UAE. Hmm. In, the, in the vet sector, Vance, so obviously not in language learning or in, um, in higher ed. Well, yeah, well, I'll, I'll Google that while I'm listening. Okay. Yeah, that was one of the interesting Google things that came up for me. It's one of the interesting things that came up for me in doing the background research for this uh, was how uh, the TAFE model, oh, sorry, not the TAFE model, the VET model in Australia, particularly the, the idea of a national training system and the uh, AQF, You froze, Steph. Yeah. Yeah, so you're still there, Jacinta, Alex? Yes. Yeah, we're here. Still here. Yeah, still here. Unusual to lose. Okay, Steph, you froze. Yeah, still I was just commenting on the, uh, the research that I'd done. A lot of, there was quite a recurring theme of, of uh, other countries looking favourably on at the Australian vet sector. Uh, particularly the national training system, national qualifications, national standards, uh, quite uh, with envy that uh, they would have that in their countries. Certainly, 10 years ago that was, or not mm. 10 years ago, but yeah, 10, 10 or 12 years ago that was certainly the case in, in the UK. Mm. Anyway, I just, I thought it, it was very difficult to do any kind of analysis of the current changes in VET without some kind of picture. There may be people listening to this who, you know, don't really know from whence we came in terms of VET. So, um, you know, I've spent a bit of time reflecting back on what it was like when, when I started, which was 1992. But prior to that, it was, you know, it was the WEAs, um, which came out of the workers' union, and I guess neighbourhood houses and and certainly tech colleges. I went to tech college with my mum when I was about sixteen to do life drawing. So um, yeah, Michael, you you might like to because you and I have had quite different histories in vet. Be interesting to to hear about your kind of reflections of what um, what vet was like when you started. Well, I'll have a well. I can don't need to have a stab at what it was like because I remember what it was like. So it's not my version. It's um, a description of what it was like. And I, I like you, Robin, was in the language and literacy area specifically ESL. But if I was to think back, and I've written about this in other places that you may or may not have read, but that doesn't matter. Um, what I remember is that there was a lot more 
trust in staff. I mean, that that's a double-edged sword, of course. I couldn't believe, because I came out of the school system where there was a fair bit of control and supervision about what I did on a daily basis, and I walked into an adult learning environment where I was visited, I don't know, every couple of months, that it was assumed I was marking the role, that I was keeping results, that I was doing valid assessments, and I just think that, it, and I saw that change over the 25 years in TAFE, and this is a very personal thing, and I'm certainly the kind of person that if you want to get the best out of me, trust me, try and control me, measure me, harness me, I'll rebel, and I'll, you won't get the best out of me. And I've often wondered how many other people there are around who would have 20 years ago felt like they were trusted. And as every year went by, particularly in the last 10 years, the trust and the lack and the diminishing trust of the standard teacher from management and above was palpable. And it was just, it was really sad and it was really stupid and it was really backward and had incredibly negative impacts across the organization. So that's one thing. The other thing that was very prevalent back then was social justice was real. Social justice is part of why we were there. Yes, we were subject experts. We were to teach what we taught and, and impart skills, but it was accepted and acknowledged that part of what you did was about social justice. The TAFE vet was a place that people came to who couldn't make it into higher ed or couldn't get work, who needed, they needed another place to kind of fill in the gaps that their life, you know, held for them. So, and that probably earlier than 10 years ago, about 15 years ago, that started to disappear. And this was all, and you could see it then, this was all about you, it's so difficult to measure the gains of people who are typically are in that situation because, because life's been a bit, I don't know, more more of a struggle for those people. Their, their gains weren't obvious and their gains were slow. But you knew as a professional that where the gains were there and sometimes those gains, again, were not academic. They couldn't be measured in marks or they couldn't be measured in the numbers of curriculum hours they'd scored in terms of the system. But you knew you were making progress with those people because there was a different set of metrics, is the word now, which didn't exist back then, by which you measured people's performance. So over the years, if you couldn't measure it hard and fast on some kind of stick or ruler and put a dollar value against it, then it went. And the other thing that I've, was a huge change, and I mean, I sit back and think, I was incredibly fortunate, as many of us in this room were, TAFE slash the VET system paid for me to go overseas and research and appear at conferences and learn from overseas colleagues five times. And that was about innovation. TAFE and VET spent money on innovation and we promoted ourselves and we listened to the rest of the world about how we could position ourselves as, as VET providers. So they're the three things for me, the, the, the lack of social justice, the, the emphasis that crept in on measuring and lack of trust and the complete ditching of anything to do with innovation, which of course means taking risk, which means making maybe failure because well, you can't measure failure either. You can't measure it, therefore we won't fund it. So for me, they're the, they're the main things that I saw in my time. Mm. So um, I actually started out in Skillshare, which was an employment um, program essentially funded for. And Shane Melanie's not here because she's got a better memory than me. But like you, Michael, I started out running a, a, a literacy numeracy program. I think to add to what you've already said, there was um, a lot more flexibility in, in what we did. There was a lot more funding. Um, and I think we the, the focus was much more on learners and their needs. I think my favourite saying at the time was that it, the sorts of um, students we got, um, it took six months for them to even start to feel good about themselves as learners again. And they were students who had, the school system had failed. And the sorts of um, people who came through our door 
um, wouldn't be brave enough to walk in the front gates of a cave. So, you know, um, we had a custom-built uh, centre for that. Lots of money, lots of freedom. I, I think another big thing then, and I support what you said about social justice, Michael, is that we worked with um, people with disabilities, we worked with grandparents, uh, we, you know, retirees, um, not necessarily people who um, needed to or wanted to enter the workforce. They were people who wanted to improve their skills. And now, um, apart from probably U3A and you know a few isolated programs, um, that doesn't exist, and that's a really sad thing. You know, I don't know what can be done about that kind of thing. I said to Steph just yesterday, you know, where are these people now? Where you know, where do they go uh, to get the kinds of support that that we provided? So you know, TAFE TAFE took on board a lot of the national system a lot later. But I, in the early 90s, I saw the introduction of training packages. You know, before that, we had to purchase um, curricula, and there was a big long list. You had no idea what was good, what was bad. <laughs> it was word of mouth, pretty much. Um, I saw the introduction of competency-based training and assessment. Um, you know, we kind of take it for granted they've been there, but no, they, they were all introduced. So the introduction of VTAB and, and organised an audit in the early 90s. Um, from, and then Skillshare and a lot of the employment programs that, you know, were largely Keating, I think, um, programs. He was very big on, you know, jobs for all and... Well, there was lots a training of, subsidy, wasn't there? Lots of different programs around that were time. were taxed and they had to put that tax... 2% at one point. 2% into, into education and that had a significant effect. But these people we worked with were long-term... Uh, there were good things, there were bad things too, I guess. But from there, I Skillshare folded. I spent a bit of time casual teaching in TAFE, so I, I knew what the TAFE system was like. And from there, went into the A sector, sector, which is now community colleges. Has anyone else been around before, well before 2000? Who wants to kind of shed some more light on life back then? Yeah, I started working with TAFE in 1996 and uh, things are very much about the same, bums on seats, subsidiaries, we were talking about earlier tonight, mm. around funding models, yeah. <clears throat> indigeneity, around courses that were seen as priority or not priority, um, economics, very little has changed in that respect. Hmm. Yeah, not much has changed to go to. But we are in a low tide system at the moment. The boats are fairly low tide. I had Tony in the, Tony in the building today. I didn't throw any rotten fruit. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> should have. It's freaking locked. I'm surprised to, uh, to hear you describe it as nothing, nothing's changed, Alex, because I was teaching in TAFE in about that same time and we had rooms full of you know, young people with disabilities who were you know, writing their own books and um, you know, all sorts of programs that were much more open and uh, much more life-based. Yeah, I agree. Anything that what I'm, I'm signalling is that there's been a political change. There's been three shifts in that period of time. We know every seven to ten years there's an economic shift. There's also a political shift in Australia. I mean, you know, we're still celebrating Australia days, you know, like it's not an invasion day. But every seven to ten years we have a complete change of happening. And we have to recognise that that's what happens every seven to ten years. And we have a beautiful time, we have a fantastic time, everything goes well for five to seven years or so. And then we cut back to that you know, the economic rationalism, you know, back to the war, back on ISIS, we're back on all that side of side of it, all over again. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree about that, but I think there has been overall during that period of time, as Michael alluded to, a, a gradual shift away from that kind of um, uh, post-school education as, as a right yeah. uh, as an Australian citizen to the total opposite now. And, um, you know, we've kind of, underneath that has been a bit of a, you know, a wave of, fun, you know, programs coming and going and funding cuts and priorities changing. But I think, um, you know, the, underpinning this discussion needs to be some kind of, you know, awareness of... Uh, the working life that people people had early on, who were now in the in potentially in senior management positions, and or um, as some of us have been kind of getting sidelined. Mm. Mm. I mean, both you and Michael obviously uh, own a particular area in within the vet sector, but I mean that probably is more about social inclusion, it's more about, you know, second chance education, literacy and numeracy. And, you know, there is that side of TAFE, sorry, the VET sector, which is also about um, skills for industry and the apprenticeship programs, for instance, you know, the, the tech college aspect of, uh, of, uh, of the VET sector which is, you know, quite a different focus, which is really tied to industry. I mean, mm. the sort of training that you did, although it was uh, about building, potentially, making people able to participate, it's about enabling participation, where, you know, whereas it's just that other aspect of the vet sector, which is about giving people tangible skills so they can actually do their jobs. Yeah, but that, that, was, that was there too. That, mm. You know, I, I, I think there are, you know, a number of... People that we know who um, who have remained in the um, English language and literacy areas, who you know are, are beside themselves with grief over the, the changes that have happened during that time. But I but I still think you know there were um, even within the standard vet programs, it was a different approach, a different underpinning kind of attitude toward, towards it. Well, it's interesting because all of the sort of uh, national targets, whether they be COAG or whether they be the state governments, uh, all have literacy and numeracy um, targets because any of the literature that um, you read, the levels of literacy and numeracy in, in, our, in our country are really low. And, but they uh, don't fund it. Why don't we fund it? No, they don't fund it. Yes, that goes into every document. It's like in mentioning, fact, the, you know, the, the gay whales. It's got to be in there, but they don't do anything about it. No, in fact, the WELL program, Workplace English Language Literacy Program, that started in the early 90s has been uh, axed by the current government. Hmm. Um, so I don't. I and the literacy programs we know of are, have lost funding and staff. So I don't quite know how know. how it is being addressed now. When when did when did the um, TAFE become TAFE? I mean, when when did it cease being tech colleges? Oh, that's a good point. Actually, I've got and that moved here. to that kind of broader agenda of um, education. I think um, it, it it happens in happens in the nineteen forties. There's a, there's a, there's a shift there in the post war period. There was increasing funding by the uh, states, particularly in what you might broadly say is a sort of technical you know, technical training sector. Uh, and the next major moment, I suppose, is the 1960s, uh, where there's that so-called Kangan report, and there you start to see the Commonwealth investing uh, in the vet sector, and particularly post-Whitlam, you see quite a significant, and the 1974 and on, you see significant uh, investment in the vet sector, and particularly, I suppose, in Australia, in the TAFE sector, particularly. But it was still tech. It was still a tech college oh, yes. in the in the 70s. So, 
I, I, I just can't remember. Michael, can you remember when TAFE became TAFE? No, I can't remember. I mean, I came in in sort of eighty eight, and it was TAFE. So I, oh. I, for me, it was always TAFE. Mm. Yeah, well, Steph, I just wanted to kind of um, chuck an example of how you, yes, what you were saying about Robin and I's background and the kind of people we worked with, as in you know ESL or language and literacy people. But I heard stories over the last twelve months of. Uh, automotive, plumbing, and other you know technical areas, kind of standard TAFE programs where they used to run like a half hour or an hour session a couple of times a week for students who were struggling. Gone, not funded. You could do it, but you did it in your own time. You were no longer allowed to do that as part of your allocated teaching load. So it wasn't just in our programs. What you say is correct, but that kind of slashing of all those extra support things. Was, was very much targeted and removed. It is Brad Beach. Hope he doesn't mind me quoting him in absentia. He said, Gibbs TAFE removed everything that had the word support in it. And the only thing that stayed was the canteen. They even had a conversation at one point about closing the canteen. Hmm. Yeah, well, I hear you there. And I suppose there's that shift, uh, particularly by the government more than anything, uh, towards uh, an investment in, in the educational sector that would have direct employment outcomes. And I suppose those individuals that have an investment that don't result in, a, in employment outcomes, then perhaps they don't want to spend the money. It no. just takes longer. And no, they weren't, they weren't prepared mm. to allow that longer period. Hmm. Alison Miller, are you still here? I am. I, I'm kind of multitasking, but I am. I'm, I'm just thinking in terms of the continuum of time, whether um, um, the the need, the the changing skill need in that time. So it'd be interesting to think about. When um, you know, even when my sister left school, or even when I left school, there was still you know you could pick up jobs in offices and retail. You know, there were lots of factory jobs that you could go to. There are lots of kind of tradie jobs that you could go to. Where is where they now the um, either need or the desire is more higher end jobs which require higher end skills. So is that seen? Is that been some of the reason for the shift of um, where some of the funding has gone. So there's been a push over the last couple of years to increase the number of people who've got a bachelor or higher, um, as opposed to you know starting um, uh, at, at a different end of education. But at the same time, it's recognised that Australia, working-aged Australians, um, don't have um, was it about levels three in the Australian core skills framework um, in terms of langu language literacy and numeracy. So the demand for these skills has not gone anywhere. Um, perhaps it's just where they, the money for um, developing people's skills perhaps has changed. I had a conversation yesterday with a friend who is kind of trying to get a discussion going on LinkedIn at the moment and it's basically that issue of and it's not common to the vet sector it's not only the vet sector it's going across that board it's, it's that it's the what I see as an overemphasis on assessment and reporting and like I said earlier, if it can't be measured, they won't fund it. Whereas I think that's a very dangerous road for a society to go down. I mean, if we if we had that as an operating principle of schools, they'd all be closed. I mean, school is a place where you're allowed to more or less develop at your own pace, and it's not about as much. You know, if you don't pass grade six, you you, you have to leave the school. So there's still an element there of kind of tolerating individual differences and the fact that it takes time to reach your, your maturity, whatever your goal is. And I think as a society, we're now stuck in this thing, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist and it won't be funding it. And I just think that's a very cold, clinical, dangerous path to follow as a nation. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, I, I hear what you're saying, Michael. I mean, I think there are two um, forces at work there. One is perhaps the very idea of the national training system itself and the whole idea of training packages and the whole idea of being able to quantify uh, skills that are relevant to particular industries uh, and then set them out and then, I guess, regulate in some consistent way whether a person has achieved those competencies. And that necessarily involves a form of measurement, a form of uh, rationalisation. It's not necessarily cold-hearted, but it's a, it's a desire to form a baseline for quality, for consistency, for, um, you know, um, you know, so that I, that, that an employer, when they get someone walk through their door, uh, they don't have to say, "Oh, did Michael Cogden teach him? Oh, he's a great guy, and I know that he really he's does wonders with his students." It's not about Michael. It's about the fact that he can, or she can, look at this piece of paper and say that person is as good as someone who did a course in Victoria. But don't you think that's very much, that that's the kind of factory fodder um, model, that, that's the widget in the hole kind of you know, uh, approach to mm. working lives. Um, I think what Michael's kind of alluding to are more the, you know, the, the development of kind of soft skills, if you like, which we know are highly valued mm. by employers. But how do you how do you teach? Do you should we be teaching those? How do you teach those? And how do you measure those things? Well, um, look, uh, because because I I don't know if um, Michael and Jacinta were there, but I can remember a conference a long time ago where somebody stood up and said. Was, they were from Cairns. They were in hospitality, and they said, "We don't, we don't care about the practical skills. We'll teach them that. Well, what we want are people that we can employ, who are going to fit in with our team, are going to be flexible and trustworthy, and show initiative, and you know all that kind of thing. Yeah. You know they." And that's about ensuring that the training package has those uh, uh, those aspects. But how it. can you have that in a competency-based training and assessment? Well, wasn't there a time where they sought to embed uh, communication uh, competencies across all uh, across yeah, all the training not, packages? Yeah, but communication comes down in a training package comes down to being able to write a particular thing or mm. speak a particular thing. So I think this is quite different. Yeah, but Alison, how well is that done where you work? So you're still a live TAFE teacher, and your your colleagues have to take into account as you do things like you know negotiating conflict, problem solving, all the soft skills. Is it done? Is it done well? I mean, there was I think it was around 2006, 2007. There was a big push. Um, it was there was the embedding of employability skills into training packages that were supposed to be um, be more explicit, that people were spent, supposed to spend more time on employability skills because as Robin's talked about that the, and some people hate this, this statement, but I, I am a big believer that the soft skills, what people call the soft skills, are actually the hard skills to teach. They're, they're not something that you can get somebody to regurgitate and go, yep, no worries, or copy. Um, what you're doing. It takes a long time to develop those skills and therefore they should be spread across a whole um, um, training for them. But that that's, that was kind of had a bit of wind, had no um, finance behind it. Um, but those, like every every good educator, those educators that are passionate about making sure that they make a difference in people's lives still um, make sure that all of those are incorporated. But at the moment I think you'll find that um, it, it is it's uh, it is um, it's a it's a survival mode. It's you know how can you get these people through? It's a um, you know will will people still be employed at, at the end of the term or the semester because there's not enough people going through? There's not enough dollars going through. Um, so therefore, it, you know it's more about making sure that they get them through as uh, effectively as and efficiently as they can. And so the affordances of 
some of the value add that we should be offering students. So something like a university degree that's you know you know it's going to be three years long, and so therefore you can work on those graduate capabilities. I'm not guaranteeing that that's what happens in universities, but at least you you've got can put them in the program over a three-year period. Whereas uh, you know we can deliver a qualification in eight weeks. Now, now how can you work on somebody's um, general capabilities and see a real effect in just eight weeks? It, it, um, it, it's a lot harder. Mm. So it, it's it's very very. Um, you know, it is. People want to be student focused, but the the bottom line is: is can we afford to be student focused? Hmm. I mean, it was. It, it was. Um, you know, there was such a big push in the you know around you know two thousand that that kind of area around you know adult learning theory and you know. You know, making sure all the all the teachers were you know, focused on that and students centeredness and all, you know that kind of stuff and it's you know I feel a lot of the um, good quality approaches in terms of what we know to be good teaching practice have kind of gone by the wayside a little bit and because as Alex uh, Allison said there. You know where students are being, you know, force-fed through as as quickly as possible. And yeah, well, that's what you know, it's interesting. I mean, the whole uh, the training packages. Some of the criticism of training packages is that they're too big. They're they they that that actually industry some industry are saying that they want more um, specific skills. They yeah. they they feel that training packages are just give. You know, too much. They're too big. They're, they're too wide ranging, uh, and they and they want more. They want their workers to have a particular set of skills, and don't feel the training packages are doing that. Whereas you're talking about this, you know. It, it, it seems to me that that you know we're we're due a, a major. Um, uh, change in the whole post-school um, system <laughs> or systems. We've kind of re I, th I feel as though we've reached crunch point and that things are, are um, going downhill very quickly, and you know something's got to give. <laughs> you almost need to throw everything in the air and. And start again. Nothing's working. Higher ed doesn't seem to be working. That doesn't seem to be working. There are a lot of people falling through gaps who are not getting the support that they need. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, that's also one of the criticisms that's made of training packages is that they they um, they're not flexible enough. That they they they're not able to uh, change enough for rapid rapid transformation in society. Whether that be industries that uh, are disintermediated and new industries emerge very rapidly, or technologies within a particular industry that transform very quickly, uh, that training packages um, can't um, adjust quickly enough. Then, of course, there's a criticism by some RTOs, particularly private RTOs, have made this criticism that training packages change too quickly, too often, and that they have to spend too much time uh, fulfilling the regulatory arrangements, you know. Put, you know, having to reapply for scope, etc. Well, one thing that I that I didn't mention that I, I think, and I don't know, Michael, if you'd agree with me, but one thing that was very strong, you know, in our early careers was collaboration, and I, I think cross-sectoral collaboration um, happened. And it, again, it was mainly in language and literacy, I think. But it happened because there was enough, you know, there was enough funding. There was no competition for that, yeah. for that funding. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it encouraged encouraged us. You know, where I was, TAFE and ACE and Skillshare all spent a morning a week in in what was then Centrelink, I think, and 
you know, advising potential students and directing them to the appropriate provider that would better suit their needs. I can't imagine that happening now. Yep, I can remember doing that, referring people to a private provider regularly, every week, because just the program that was offered down the road was more suited to that particular student. So now we are here. We are in a in a highly competitive um, system. Even though I can remember somebody saying a year or two ago that. You know the number of places that um, they are wanting to create couldn't possibly be um, be met or be you know be offered by the existing providers. And the suggestion was that in order to uh, train the number of Australians that was suggested, all the every provider would be full to the hilt and you know there's room kind of room for more but it seems that you know the current systems are being rolled out but there hasn't been any more funding it's just kind of squeezing the same um, amount of money well, into different areas. government funding in the vet sector has pretty much plateaued for the last 10 years mm -hmm. so and this yeah the commonwealth has increased its funding but states uh, it's pretty much plateaued. But I mean, maybe that's another issue which I was just thinking of when you've been all talking. The vet the sector has been very government driven. Uh, and if it were not for the states, if it certainly were not for the, the Commonwealth since the 1970s, we wouldn't have the vet sector. Now, governments have identified national priorities, uh, whether they be skill shortages or whether they be the need to have the population uh, trained because they know that that results in um, employment outcomes and the governments, you know, you look at the National, what is it, the Productivity Commission, if you read any of their reports, that will show you that a trained, training the population, the investment the government makes in training the population is returned many times in terms of a growth in the economy and tax return to the government. They've done the numbers, economists actually work it out. That the, government ends up even better off having an educated population. So, but what has that meant is I think that the vet sector has been almost entirely driven by the government and its associated bureaucracies. And, and, and I think you know, whether that is a good thing or a bad thing is, uh, is a matter for debate and in some ways a political thing. But what we have seen I think in the last 10 years, and, in, and it's the Labor government that's done this through COAG and the Commonwealth initiatives, is to try to, uh, in terms of government funding, broaden uh, the delivery base beyond its own provisional systems, that is TAFE, you know, but that to I, use the I, market as a more effective distributor. You know, the, the, what would be said there is that that's about choice hmm. and, and giving students choice. But in reality, I think it came out of that uh, realisation that if, and Alison, you might be able to remember the figures, but it was something like um, doubling the number of people, um, you know, participating in higher level mm. qualifications or something by 2020. But I think it came out of a realisation that TAFE couldn't do that. TAFE simply didn't have the resources or infrastructure to do that, so they needed to to broaden it in order to meet those needs. But now we're in a situation where you know, students are given that choice in a very complex kind of way, which we might like like to discuss. But um, but there's no more funding, so there's no more places. So we're just we're spreading the the available funding even more widely. Yeah, well, what's meant is the, the, the government is taking, it's not increasing the funding, it's just shifting the funding into into the private space or the private the private providers that are getting government funding to deliver. Yeah, I think, I think the there was, initiatives. I think there was a, um, an understanding amongst the vet community that, that all of this would come with more funding, but it yes. hasn't. Well, I mean, COAG tied it. See, that, that COAG um, 
um, national partnership program said to the states, we'll give you $500 million, but you have to introduce contestability, but otherwise you don't get the money. So hence, you know, states have you know, moved uh, towards a more contestable environment in order to get this, this Commonwealth funding. And that was a Labor government-driven um, initiative through COVID. So I'm assuming that, and again, um, Alison, you're probably the best place to comment on this, but I, I assume that that uh, kind of contestable model where, you know, students are given the, you know, the, the funding to select where they would like to go um, is now Australia-wide as of this year. Is that correct? Does anyone know? What was the question there? Is, is that contestable model where mm. the students are given mm. the funding mm. and they purchase, they essentially purchase mm. their own place? Is that Australia-wide now? It's, it's certainly, um, well, we know it decimated Victoria. It's, it's um, you know, the, the roll-on effect in South Australia, is, it's been felt from some areas and the, the, the long tail is yet to happen or it's happening and, and will continue to happen. Um, and so Queensland started I think last year, New South Wales this year and WA if it's not this year it will be sometime pretty soon. So I'm not sure about Tasmania and, and the territories. But that's a, see that's a, I understand the model but it's a, what, what the assumption is in that model is that the consumer knows what they're buying and the thing with education and training, it's not like a car or a computer that you can touch or feel and compare an orange with an orange. You are just looking at something that you have and once you bought it, once you buy into it, you, you, you've lost. Um, so it happened quickly in Victoria where there were you know, this insurgence of people who were uh, personal trainers and these, these people, that was their one chance to get government training um, and then they flooded the market and there was no job opportunities. So it, it did rely on a, um, a well-informed consumer which we know that's not the case. So it's, a, it's got its flaws in South Australia. Our government kind of prided itself or used its spit doctors to say how wonderful it was, how they achieved all of their, their target numbers of training in 2013 when really the budget should have stretched to 2015. Um, and so now there's a lot of um, uh, people that can't get, can't get training because they just can't afford it. They just can't afford $2,000 or $3,000 to get a Cert 2 or a Cert 3. So it will have a, a longer term impact um, and because our, the way our political system is that it's a two to, what is it, a, a kind of two to three turnaround on changing governments and that's all they're worried about is putting themselves in for that next um, term that they don't really care what impact it's going to have in four, two or three years or what it's happening to young people and, and people who are on low incomes. They, they, that's not their concern. Their concern is about getting voted in in the next round of elections. Mm. Yeah, look, I think that is one of the things that's a, a problem for the vet sector is that it, um, because it is so government-driven, not just from a funding point of view but from a regulatory point of view, I mean, governments, and, and, and it's so complex, you've got the Commonwealth Government with its own agenda, then you've got each state government with its own, own agenda, and it's just uh, incredibly complex, uh, and each government decides that they're going to do something different. I, if you have a look on the wiki, I've put up a, um, a document there, which is a sort of his, history of um, vet policy from the 1960s, and well, look at that, you just nearly fall off your chair. It's just astonishing. All these endless papers, the Kangan paper, the, this paper, the, that paper, the, and all these people have come up with these brilliant ideas for the vet sector uh, and just, you know, turned the dice again. And then in a few years goes by, oh, well, that didn't work, so we'll try something else. And the whole sector's just sort of at the mercy of all these um, people trying these different approaches. Seems to me at the moment in um, New South Wales, it, it's um, you know I, I suspect that the you know this new 
approach has been fairly carefully um, orchestrated, but as a result, it's it's incredibly complex, and you know, I I gather that there's some quite serious issues appearing now that you know the semester has started with, particularly in rural areas where there are students who have, what do they call it, is it an entitlement or a voucher, mm. have a voucher, um, but they, when they go into their local provider, the provider is saying, oh, you know, well, no, we don't, we're not offering that now. So, you know, the, the student is then stuck with, with nowhere to yeah. spend their spend their voucher. I think you're right. I mean, the New South Wales government did take a fairly um, soft approach to it, and probably the Victorian experience, which took the very neoliberal sort of laissez-faire approach, uh, and it pretty much, you know, almost killed the vet, the, the, the TAFE sector. Uh, but in South Australia, it was taking a fairly vociferous approach to the contestability. So I think the New South Wales government's taken a fairly measured approach um, and they're actually being quite criticised. I mean ACPET recently came out and said that they didn't think that, that the New South Wales had mock contestability, that it wasn't really a contestable environment at all, that in fact they even challenged whether New South Wales hadn't hoodwinked the federal government by accepting the, uh, the National Partnership uh, Agreement money um, and hadn't really implemented full contestability. Um, so, you know, yeah, well, it's interesting. But you know that the private the private providers aren't happy with the, the degree to which they they were able to access government funding, and that and that it was necessarily overly bureaucratic. Um, that there was no transparency in the process. I think that was another big criticism. I, I of course another introduction is now is vet fee help, uh, which essentially is like you know yeah, hex right. and a, and a loan scheme. But um, well, I really, I really feel for people who are wanting to reskill or to, you know, they've got in, they've done some training in the past, and you know that's kind of gone to a dead end, and they're wanting to. Is for for their courses, and you know, sure, they a lot of the courses are eligible for vet fee help, but they, you know, it, it's a big burden on somebody to have to have that repayment on top of, you know, the the other impacts on their lives at the moment. So a couple of years ago, there was also. Um, mooted a that vet and higher ed would merge. That seems to have um, died by the wayside. Can I, just before we go on to that, can I just talk about the uh, the loans, uh, the, heck, the, the sort of uh, vet fee help? And I actually have a figure here that um, uh, there's been a blowout from $325 million uh, that the government has paid out for uh, vet um, fee help to 1.5 billion last year. Uh, now, I think what's significant about that is just the level of debt that the population is um, is taking on, and ostensibly the government is borrowing money on behalf of citizens, uh, giving it to the provider, and then um, charging the charging the citizen interest. Now we was we've become uh, familiar with it in the higher ed environment, and I guess the argument by the Labor government that introduced it said, well, people who do degrees get a significant uh, personal uh, financial advantage from having a degree. All the stats shows that, so they should make a contribution. Now. That's a similar argument that's being used in the vet sector because there's clear evidence. So if you look at any of the NCPR research, it'll show that if you have a vet qualification, one, you get employment, and two, you're actually better off financially. 
by a significant amount. So they're, they're using the same argument there. You should you should make a contribution. But it worries me uh, to see this level of indebtedness that the population is increasingly. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's in. what I that's what I meant. People who are probably on quite low incomes mm. in many cases. Now, theoretically, they will probably they don't pay it until they reach the threshold. But there's no guarantee. Oh, they're, they're over the threshold now. Yeah. We're talking about people on. Forty thousand things like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. But Stefan, I think what's come out of that is that there was there was a lot. There, there were kind of there's intermediaries. I think the new standards have tried to squash those intermediaries, and these intermediaries ha must have database access to databases. Like in South Australia, we have a th they call it SATAC, so it's a tertiary admission centre where students are applying for. Um, entry into TAFE and, and into the universities and I think they must have some sort of access to this because what they then do is cold call these students and they offer these students the same sort of diploma that TAFE would offer them less than say maybe it's three or four thousand dollars. They offer these students that they could get them it free up front but offering them at a ten or fifteen thousand dollars. Mm. So they really there was been a, a large exploitation of that vet fee help again by um, by an intermediary, but again by a consumer market that has little or no idea what they're buying, how much they should be paying, who they should be going with. So I think they've tried to pull it into line through the new standards, um, but there's a lot of people that have been duped, including people. Um, there's been a lot of news, you know, people with disabilities. Mm. So it's a, an interesting space when you shift it across to um, buy now, pay later, because you don't really care what you pay because it doesn't hurt you now. Um, that's right. It's a radio rental model of education. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, Harvey Norman became a billionaire out of it, of course. Um, and those organisations like Radio Rentals and Harvey Norman, they target the poorest parts of the population. They don't, they don't, they don't go and uh, uh, target the wealthy. They target the poor because they're the ones who are quite, you know, will go into debt and don't understand the exactly. things they're signing. Exactly. And and certainly you're right, Alison. There's been a lot of concern around uh, some of the recent entrance to the to the vet marketplace, for want of a better word, around, you know, telling people that um, their course is free. And if, you, you know, uh, when in fact they're being put into debt and simply being put into debt has its consequences. If you try to get a, a car loan or you try to get uh, some other type of loan, that debt will, will, will come up. It will be assessed. And they may uh, say, "Sorry, we're not going to give you a personal loan because you've got this debt." Yeah, that's, that's possible. There's advertising on television over the last couple of weeks from a company who says they can actually remove your credit debt. They'll just remove it, just like that. Jo join up, pay a fee, and we'll get rid of all your debt. That is your um your credit history and your bad debt history. So that that's significant. If there's someone who sees a business in that area, clearly, like you say, Steph, mounting levels of individual debt or bad credit records, so there's now a company to deal with that problem. I need to go. It costs you about thousand dollars per debt that you have to actually get your credit cleared. Okay, so it's not cheap. Ah, no, not at all. Well, how do you, how are they doing that? I mean. Presumably, banks have this as a record. Why would they get rid of this? I mean, who are they paying? Is it some sort of corrupt? They're going through there? groups like Dun and Bradstreet, who keep your credit records. Um, there's a group called Credit Wash that actually are doing this. Um, but I actually called up because I had a outstep. Well, it's all paid for and has been for years. I had a debt. Um, with the telecom and um, they said to me that just to get that one debt which was something like $150 was going to cost me $999 for them to go through and do it. Cool. Yeah. Michael, I heard, I heard you say that you've got to go but I, yeah. I, I 
I really like you like to talk more about what you said about you know innovation going down the gurgler and you know probably ten years ago I I had to somewhere and so we you know when times are tough innovation is always one of the first things to go but yeah. I'm interested it's particularly so at the moment and I'm really interested in in what the consequences of that will be I wonder whether we should kind of mark that as a, a starting point for another discussion because when I was saying that earlier the Would first thing I thought to myself was um, let's have some examples of where it's actually benefited. So we were in that kind of gravy train as some people called it and it would be good to look at where the pluses were and do as you suggest what doesn't happen if there is no funding of innovation. I'd like to throw another angle into it too which we won't have time to talk about but I, I just had the feeling when I was in VET that what was going on in VET where all the resources, all the energy, all the money was directed towards a cookie cutter model of education more and more based on standards, national training levels, all of that stuff whereas in society as a whole what you've got happening en masse is an individualization of training and activity and employment and personal behaviours and this has all become come across or happened as a result of internet and social media. So where you've got an individualization, I think, en masse of people on the planet, you've still got education systems which are basically industrial models churning out the same product. And until all our education systems get their heads around that and refocus what they do, we're going to have an ongoing problem of the education system and VET in particular won't meet the needs of people who have individual desires. So anyway, that's I think another aspect that's worth talking about maybe another time. Indeed. Part B, I think. Part B. Well, we've been going an hour, so we should wrap it up. And I must apologise to you, Vance. It's not been a topic that you could particularly engage with. Well, actually, I've, I've had a lot of connections with you guys uh, You know, over the years, probably at a time when apparently from what Michael is saying, things were more innovative. But speaking of the present and the future, what about MOOCs? Are they making any inroads on the VET sector funded by the government? Because that's actually where people can get education for free and, you know, exactly what you're talking about, I think. I actually don't think they are, to be quite honest. What do you think, Michael? No, they're not. And I think that's interesting in itself. Um, what I did hear, the most interesting take I've heard on this is that organisations, that is companies who often do their own training, are a little bit freaked out by MOOCs because they do have, I mean there are people who work in organisations right now who instead of signing up for training programs via the official channels within the organisation, they're doing a MOOC and of course this means standards are out the window. You don't have everybody doing the same training and this is what I mean by it's breaking down the cookie cutter approach. People aren't doing the company training, they're doing the MOOC training which is individualised. Problem for companies. Mm, sure, for compliance etc. Yeah, Mind yeah. you, we, we, we went to that learning and work conference together and we did see a number of rather large companies putting their staff through MOOCs that's right. Like you know, that they they were embracing it in that sense. But yeah, I think MOOCs assume a, you know potentially quite a high level of skill to access and really participate and get a lot out of it. So there would only be perhaps a certain level of vet that you know it would be useful for mm. at all. But Certainly not happening at the moment. No. Or we don't know. It could be happening. We, we will stop monitored. <laughs> we don't know, do we? So can I suggest perhaps, because yeah. we haven't talked a lot about technology and we haven't talked about innovation, so it sounds like a, a nice little package to mm. to um, return to next time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Well, we'll uh, end the formal podcast. We can still keep chatting if you want, but uh, I shall uh, stop the broadcast.
and uh, there we are, wrap it up for first one of 2015. Yeah. Okay, thanks everyone and good night. And I'll just speak for Alison Miller, who in the text chat said to tell everybody goodbye. She didn't want to interrupt the flow of the conversation. Thanks, Steph. I'll just say goodbye for Alex Hayes. He's got caught up with something. And uh, thank you for welcoming me in today. And I hope to join in more of the discussions. Fabulous. Lovely to have you here, Jacinda. Good on you, Jacinta. FLN Fold? No, FLL. FLL. Oh, sorry. Yep. <laughs> God, FLL. Of course, it's learning leaders. Yeah, not the leaders. They're not part of a network. They're not a network. They're leaders, of course. Leaders anymore? I still think they have a significant influence. There's still quite a few of them around. Increasingly, has been. We learn. Flexible learning lurkers. Yes. That's right. Thanks for having me along too. Make this a truly global conversation. Yes. See you all next time. Bye. Thanks, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Good night, everyone. Good night.